Welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Rachel Britt, and I'm an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. Today's spectacular topic holds a soft spot in my heart because it was the focus of my first ever Breakpoints episode as host. If you haven't guessed by my attempt to be punny here, we're doing another CDF related episode today. Uh, but more specifically, we're talking about the microbiome and the new area of microbiota-based live biotherapeutic products, or LBPs, and their role in C. diff infection treatment. Our episode today was sponsored by an unrestricted medical education grant from Faring Pharmaceuticals. I'm also very excited to have with me today two experts in this exciting field, Anne Gonzalez Luna and Paul Feuerstadt. Ann Gonzalez Luna is an assistant professor at the University of Houston College of Pharmacy in Houston, Texas. Dr. Gonzalez Luna earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Texas College of Pharmacy in Austin, Hookham Horns, before completing a PGY-1 pharmacy residency at the Michael E. DeBakey Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Houston, and a two-year infectious diseases pharmacotherapy fellowship at the University of Houston College of Pharmacy under Dr. Kevin Gary. Her research focuses on C. diff infection, including microbiome science and C. diff antimicrobial resistance. Dr. Gonzalez Luna also serves as a preceptor for antimicrobial stewardship and research rotations for fourth year pharmacy students, as well as the Infectious Diseases Pharmacotherapy Fellowship Program Coordinator. Hi, Anne, thanks for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me, I'm excited to be here. Next, I have Dr. Paul Feuerstadt. And he's a native of Long Island, New York, and attended the University of Pennsylvania, where he graduated summa cum laude with a Bachelor of Arts degree in biology with distinction in research. He then received his MD from Whale Medical College of Cornell University. From there, he completed his internship and residency in internal medicine at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Wheel Cornell Medical Center. After completing his internal medicine residency, Dr. Forrestat joined the Montefiore Medical Center at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, where he completed his gastroenterology fellowship. Dr. Forrestat began with the Packed Gastroenterology Center, a part of Hartford Healthcare Medical Group in 2011. He also holds a clinical appointment as an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine. His special interest includes C. diff infection and other infections of the small and large bowel, fecal microbiota transplantation, or FMT, ischemic diseases of the gut, and other diseases of the colon and small bowel, including irritable bowel syndrome. Hi, Paul. It's good to have you. Awesome being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for you guys being here today. I'm honestly just going to kick it straight over to y'all today because you can walk us through a lot of the background behind this area of therapeutics. Uh, and if you could start us off, can you give us a high-level overview on what the microbiome is and what it's made up of? Sure. Um, so the microbiome generally refers to the collection of all the microbes that live on and inside our bodies. And so that includes bacteria, but it also includes fungi and viruses, although usually we're referring to bacteria when we talk about the microbiome. Um, and the number of these microorganisms far outnumber the amount of human cells we have in our bodies. So you can imagine they serve a huge variety of important roles through interacting with each other and interacting with our cells. And these range from immune system development, host defense and colonization resistance, and also just a lot of the nutritional functions um, that humans need. So we, it, you know, they help regulate our energy metabolism and synthesize vitamins. Um, and so generally we've really progressed quite a lot in our understanding of the microbiome in the past 20 or so years, but we still really have a really long way to go to fully grasp all the roles that these organisms play in human health. So I'm pretty excited to be involved in this area of research. 
Awesome. That's really crazy that the number of bacteria even outnumber our human cells. I can't even imagine what it might look like in there and or like a microscope. Uh, so all of that and what we know, what we don't know, how does all of that relate to C. diff infection? You know, it, it's important to really kind of contextualize what was just raised, which is the idea that those microorganisms all live either on our skin or within our gut or in other portions of our body. But what we really care about is their metabolic output, right? We somewhat care about what's there, but we care about what they're producing and how they interact with our body. Because if there's a change, we call that dysbiosis, then that change can result in changes in the metabolism and changes in the metabolism can lead to diseases. The landmark disease for that is C. difficile infection. And that's the one we know the most about, honestly, we're kind of barely scratching the surface on the other things, but we know a lot about this. So let's kind of take a couple steps back and think about C. difficile. Take us back to our textbook years. And I'll remind you that C. difficile is a gram-positive spore-forming anaerobic rod. So what does that mean? What that means is that there's really two phases of infection. The spore phase, the vegetative phase. The vegetative phase is this kind of phase that releases toxins and wreaks havoc in our gut, specifically in our colon. It stimulates the abdominal pain, the fevers, the diarrhea that we see with C. difficile. Importantly, this vegetative phase is susceptible to gastric acid and it's susceptible to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. So plainly stated, if we swallow it, it gets wiped out. If we use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer, it's gonna get wiped out. Alternatively, that spore phase is much more resistant. The spore phase can last on dry surfaces on the order of six to eight months and remain viable. Now think about that in healthcare systems, in hospitals, in nursing homes. This is why this spreads so extensively. Now, how do we classically get C. difficile? Classically, what happens is we swallow that spore phase. It's resistant to the gastric acid. It gets into our small bowel, and then it has a process called germination. That germination is the conversion from the spore phase to the vegetative phase. And it builds an army of sorts heading towards the colon. But I'm a gastroenterologist and I think the colon's a brilliant organ and the colon is a brilliant organ, right? The colon has its own defense system independent of that bloodborne defense system that protects it. That defense system is what we were just talking about, which is the microbiota. What classically alters the microbiota or creates dysbiosis or causes so-called colonization resistance? Classically, it's antimicrobials amoxicillin, ampicillin, clarithromycin, fluoroquinolones, and cephalosporins. We weaken that colonization resistance, we create that dysbiotic state, and the C. difficile is able to proliferate. So now, with that foundational knowledge in mind, how do we apply that clinically? The best way to apply that clinically is to understand what the mechanisms of action of the treatments for C. difficile that we have are. And there are a couple of different treatments that we have. We have antimicrobials, classically now, either vancomycin or fidaxomycin. We have a infusible product called bezlotuximab. That's a one-time infusion given at, during a standard of care antimicrobial to reduce recurrence. And then we have fecal microbiota transplantation or the second generation, the live biotherapeutic products, which we're gonna get into in more detail later. Well, how do these things work in the context of the pathophysiology that I described? Classically, what happens is the vegetative phase 
is treated by antimicrobials. And I'm gonna say that one more time because it's super important. The vegetative phase, the phase that releases the toxins is treated by vancomycin and fidaxomycin. So what's the difference between those two things? Well, vancomycin is a broader spectrum antimicrobial that targets C. difficile, but also makes the dysbiosis worse. It is associated with higher rates of recurrence because of that. Versus fidaxomycin, which is a narrower spectrum antimicrobial, being more targeted therapy, having less of this so-called collateral damage or making less of the dysbiosis. So now if we think about this, after we treat with an antimicrobial, the microbiota is at its lowest point because in order for somebody to get C. difficile, it has to be weakened. And then the antimicrobials that we use to treat weaken it further. What happens after the antimicrobial comes off is that without further intervention, the microbiota has to regrow. And as it regrows, it needs to regrow fairly rapidly in order to prevent that spore phase that still remains within the system from converting back to the vegetative phase and causing a recurrence. So this is where this dysbiosis and this replenishment of the microbiota plays a role. So if we only use antimicrobials, we know that recurrence rates are up to 35% with initial infection, 40 to 50% with first recurrence, and up to 60% as patients get caught in this cycle of recurrence after recurrence after recurrence. And we want to break that cycle. I love that you highlighted specifically the differences between vancomycin and fidaxomycin because I sometimes um, have difficulty explaining some, to some of my prescribers here that if you start them on fidaxomycin, but unfortunately the patient won't be able to obtain it outpatient, you are almost wiping away all the benefits of fidaxomycin by finishing the course with POVANC because the broader spectrum can um, harm the microbiota, thereby uh, getting rid of the benefit of using fidaxomycin in the first place. And I don't necessarily think that everyone can think about it that way and why fidaxomycin can, has less recurrence versus POVINC. Um, and do you have anything to add about the microbiota? No, I mean, I think um, it is really important point to underscore that the antibiotics we use to treat C. diff do cause further dysbiosis. I think it's very appreciated in clinical practice to try to be good stewards with non-CDI antibiotic use in patients that have had C. diff infection, but I think it's really underappreciated that the antibiotics we use to treat the infection also continue um, to use, dis continue to cause dysbiosis. And so that's also, you know, without going too far down the rabbit hole, kind of the debates you hear about prophylaxis or secondary prophylaxis and all of those kind of um, longer, longer than recommended durations of CDI antibiotics kind of um, carry dysbiotic risks as well. Yeah, I, I think, Rachel, you also brought up a really important point, which is if you know that a patient is not going to be able to get a full course of fidaxomycin, you're better off just giving them vancomycin off the bat. Um, but the reality is access to fidaxomycin has improved tremendously over the last few years as it's been integrated into the IDSHA guidelines as a treat in the treatment algorithm initially in 2017, but then really reinforced in 2021 as the preferred treatment. And once it became a preferred treatment for both initial infection and first recurrence, access and insurance coverage has really been much, much better. Um, so a lot of patients really have more access than, than would have otherwise been considered previously. And that's important for us as clinicians and practitioners to, to think about for our patients. Yeah, 
I feel like talking about fidexamycin and pheobankamycin and access and all of that could be a whole nother hour long podcast in itself. Um, and, and just so you know, we love to go down the rabbit hole here at Breakpoint. So we go down the rabbit hole, we get into the weeds. You can feel free to be as nerdy as you want here and talk about all the details because you're in the right place for that. Um, but let's go back to the microbiota, microbiota product um, area. Now that you guys have given the amazing description of the microbiome, I want to compare that with this new area of microbiota-based LBPs. What are they exactly and how are they different? from probiotics or FNT? And Anne, can you kick us off with that? Sure. Um, so I think we're probably all familiar with probiotics, um, first and foremost. So that's a, a fairly vague term. It's just intended to capture any product that has some amount of live organism in it that's beneficial to health. Um, sometimes these are single strains. Sometimes these have multiple bacteria or fungi in them. And they, you know, you'll see them in the store marketed for a variety of health benefits. Um, Importantly, though, these are over-the-counter products, and they're not really regulated particularly closely, and so there's often a good amount of variety in what you may actually find in that bottle or yogurt or pouch um, that may be different um, than what's, you know, on the labeled contents. Um, similarly, FMTs or fecal microbiota transplantation is also not particularly standardized, so you know, this generally refers to the installation of a donor's fecal material after screening and processing into a host, either through an NG tube or colonoscopy. But um, this is, you know, as we've kind of alluded to, intended as um, treatment for recurrent CDI usually. Um, I think there are some other off-label um, indications I'm sure Paul can speak to. Um, and then uh, there's, there's variation in how this procedure is conducted as well. And so the, the real main difference between these microbiota-based um, LBPs is really trying to chase after um, standardization. And it's going to be a, um, a lot of the regulation that will be required for approval of these newer agents kind of reflects that um, need for standardization. Yeah, no, I, I think you bring up a lot of important points there. Uh, my policy, I always say to my patients is, when you go to the supermarket and you see that pint container in the refrigerator and it's labeled as a probiotic, you're better off going to the refrigerator or the freezer section and getting yourself a pint of Ben and Jerry's because we don't know what's in the pint of the probiotic, but we do know what's in the pint of Ben and Jerry's. And well, for some of us, it's a lot of goodness, of course. But the reality here is that those, those probiotics are largely uh, completely uncontrolled and non-overseen by the FDA. And I typically recommend that if somebody is thinking of engaging a probiotic, you do get that higher standard from the pharmaceutically produced probiotics. Um, and those are prepackaged and not refrigerated. Yes, I'm a self-described ice cream connoisseur. So for me, there's a lot of goodness in Ben and Jerry's. I would much rather eat that than a pint of probiotics. Uh, but specifically honing in on FMT, because I know when I first heard about these products, one of the first questions I had is, oh, okay, so FMT is going to completely go away. Well, that I was told that may not necessarily be the case. So I want to know from you guys, where does FMT fit in with the introductions of these new therapies? Are they completely going away or are they still going to have a role? Well, I, you know, it, that's an excellent question. And I, I think that we need to kind of contextualize where FMT came from before we tr start to consider where it's going to fit in the future. Um, and, and that original, where it came from, it's been around for centuries. Uh, in, in Asia, in the fourth century AD, there are descriptions of yellow soup, which was essentially a fecal transplant. 
Um, and it was used to treat diarrhea. So, and it clearly worked, although obviously that yuck factor led to its abandonment. And that's really what's happened time and again. Even in Sub-Saharan Africa during World War II, uh, there were reports of US Armed Forces individuals who had dysentery performing fecal transplants on each other. And oh, by the way, it worked. In the 1960s was the first real published manuscript that looked into this. It looked at four individuals with quote unquote antibiotic associated diarrhea, gave them all fecal transplants. Three of the four responded. Now they didn't term it C. difficile, but of course that yuck factor stood in the way. But from the 1970s forward, there's been sort of this revolution or this epidemic of C. difficile that slowly gained steam throughout the 80s into the 90s, and in the late 90s and early 2000s timeframe, several hypervirulent strains really put the acceleration on this and put a huge burden on the healthcare system, but of course, most importantly, on our individual patients. These recurrences were really wearing at these individuals, and we were looking for anything that we could do to try to shut down those recurrences. Well, if we go back to what we said before, the antibiotics treat the vegetative phase, but that spore phase gets the knockout punch from the microbiota. So logic lives. Well, maybe if there's deficiencies in the microbiota, if we replace the microbiota with somebody else's who's healthy, it'll shut down recurrence or decrease the rates of recurrence. And lo and behold, it worked. And there were a few, I'll say, uh, individuals who had intestinal fortitude and really put their neck out there and started to perform these procedures. And it really worked. And over the 2000 to 2010 timeframe, these individuals were a little bit isolated. The yuck factor were there. People were laughing, but patients were not laughing. Patients were saying, this is something that can work. And really things changed significantly in 2013 when the first prospective randomized control trial came out. And that was by Van Newton colleagues. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it essentially showed that fecal microbiota transplantation following a standard of care antimicrobial was much, much more effective than antimicrobials alone. In fact, the study was stopped at interim analysis because of futility in the antimicrobial alone arm. And that we could talk about in another podcast with regards to that specific study, because look, vancomycin is still an effective treatment of C. difficile, and it wasn't the 20 to 30% effectiveness that was shown in that study. But the reason that study largely got into the New England Journal of Medicine was yes, it was innovative, but also they looked at the alterations to the microbiota and they showed that the microbiota pre-transplant in the recipient was achieved or was supplemented with the transplant and the diversity increased to actually above levels of the donor pre-transplant. So the form fit the function. And after that, there was an explosion of research, mostly retrospective studies, everyone raising their hand saying, I can do this and I've been doing this and this is my data. And that really peaked in 2017 with a meta-analysis by Qureshi, where they looked at 36 studies, but only six of them were prospective. And they found an efficacy of 92%. And as we think about that literature, we realize mostly retrospective, mostly tertiary quaternary care centers, not really the group of patients or providers that we mimic or that they're in day-to-day -day practice. And that really kind of normalized with a meta-analysis that said, look, let's look at studies that have a control group basic. And that study essentially showed across 13 controlled trials that the efficacy was about 76% for fecal microbiota transplantation, but in the randomized control trials, it was 67%. So really what we see is that's probably the target number for efficacy of fecal transplant, but 
think about this. That is much better than antimicrobials alone. So really in the appropriate patients, a fecal microbiota transplantation supplementing that deficiency and supplementing what the antimicrobial did, that combination can be very effective and really break the cycle of recurrence. So I guess at this point, do you see FMT completely going away with the introdu introduction of these new LBPs? Or are there gonna be certain situations where you would want FMT in this patient, but maybe try the LBP in another? So really, I think the question here is, is what is the sophistication level that we're looking at? FMT is rudimentary. We used to actually, when I saw a patient for recurrency difficile, and we were thinking about a fecal transplant, I tell them to bring a friend and a relative. And then I'd bring the friend and the relative to another exam room, and I'd take a history from them. And then I'd go through a blood donor questionnaire. And if they pass those things, then I'd screen them for about 20 different infectious diseases, blood work, stool studies. But that wasn't enough. That was enough at the time, but that isn't enough in 2022 because fecal transplant worked and it was safe, but live biotherapeutic products are pharmaceutically produced. They've gone through phase two, phase three clinical trials. They've been overseen by the FDA and they don't suffer from that heterogeneity. I alluded to it before, but there's heterogeneity in those trials that we looked at before showing, look, this can work, but you know what? A fecal transplant in somebody in San Diego is different than Seattle, is different than Portland, Maine, is different than Nantucket, Massachusetts, and is different than Southern Florida. So really what we're looking for as individuals, pharmacists, as clinicians, what can we provide patients that's predictable in its safety and efficacy? Again, going back to even the pints of probiotics, what's in those probiotics? Who sampled those probiotics? It was a similar effect with what we were doing before, right? We were looking at the broad scheme of things and trying to do what we had as a best practice. So where I see fecal transplant going is hopefully largely sunsetting once we have these live biotherapeutic products. Fecal transplants will most likely take a place in research trials looking at other disease states, but for C. difficile, largely assuming an FDA approval of a product that will and should take over. And also I think it will become much more broadly available. More providers will be comfortable doing it. It wouldn't take that intestinal fortitude of that select group between 2000 and 2010, or the even slightly broader group between 2010 and 2020, but it would be, hey, look, this is an FDA approved product. It's got data behind it. We see the safety profile, we see the efficacy profile, we understand who's gonna benefit, I can use this. Yeah, and I think just to kind of piggyback off that too, there's um, an important benefit to a lot of these LBPs too in that you don't need to undergo a whole procedure and you don't need um, sedation, it's not a colonoscopy. Um, so there's that benefit to all these products as well. Um, and then the other kind of nuance to, as, as Paul said, kind of these are, FMTs were fairly rudimentary. And so, you know, I think a lot of us are familiar with the um, warnings about ESBL transference back in, I think it was 2019. Um, and then of course, with the um, COVID-19 pandemic, um, SARS-CoV-2 was detected in stool and that largely shut down um, FMTs for a while. Um, and so there's kind of this, always gonna be this little bit of unknown, um, an aspect of, unknown transference with, you know, as diseases continue to emerge. I'm sure when we get into these newer products, we'll touch on that too, because some of these are still human derived um, 
donate. Uh, but uh, they're at least going to be a lot more refined than kind of, as Paul said, getting your, your friend or buddy or even using some of these larger stool banks like Open Biome that, that have um, become more popular. And Anne, that this is a good segue into talking about the product specifically. Now, Paul alluded to this, talking about FMT, but where are these new LBPs specifically going to be used in the treatment of C. diff? And in the literature that exists for them currently, what outcomes are they associated with? So all of these products are intended to be given at the completion of standard of care antibiotics for CDI. So these are really adjunctive therapies meant to restore patients' microbiome and prevent recurrence. So they're not meant to eradicate the current infection. And so that's a really important point. These, these are not going to replace the need for antibiotics in the management of C. difficile infection. Um, and so that's really what you're seeing in these trials as they come out is you're uh, primary endpoints are much lower rates of recurrence than what you see with antibiotics alone, um, but we're not really seeing differences in the immediate cure rates with any of these. I might get, be getting ahead of myself here, but uh, bezlatoximab versus the ther these therapies, I know they're, they're completely different science or completely different mechanisms, but in that case, is would there potentially be a role for combination therapy with both? Is one, it, could one usurp the other? I'm I'm seeing some faces here, so go ahead and tell me. Uh, I mean, I think there's a marginal benefit, you know, the same way you don't necessarily see um, bezlatoximab combined with fidaxomycin particularly often. I think there will be a threshold kind of at what, at what point are we chasing, um, you know, what are we gaining from adding one more anti-recurrence agent? Um, there may still be patients uh, maybe somebody really immunosuppressed, and I'm totally off off topic here, or off um, the reserve here, because we don't have evidence at all for any of this yet, but there may be somebody that's super um, immunocompromised that maybe you'd want to throw the whole kitchen sink at them, but, um, but right now I don't see, I don't see a huge role for combining them. Paul, feel free to. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, look, there's no data in this space. My assumption is once if and when there is a FDA approval for a live biotherapeutic product, there will be pilot studies uh, considering this. I think that the groups that would benefit most are exactly who you just said. Those who are most immune compromised, those patients with the most risk factors for recurrence, age over 65, chronic kidney disease, HIV, inflammatory bowel disease on a biologic, people who are on PPIs chronically, uh, individuals, if I didn't say chronic kidney disease is an important group, uh, people who spend significant amounts of time in skilled nursing facilities, spend significant amounts of time in the hospital, oncologic diagnoses, chemotherapeutics. These are all the risk factors that we think about. And if you look at the full gestalt, the full patient, um, there will be patients that might benefit from, I guess, a multi-hit uh, approach. The, the novelty here is, think about where we were 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was Metro, Vanco, and fidaxomycin had just become available, but really wasn't available. So it was really metronidazole and vancomycin. And now we have this, I won't say a wealth, but really a number of different levers that we can pull to, to approach a patient. So it's nice, I think, that we have the opportunity to even wax poetic about this. So, I, I, and I think that in certain circumstances at places like the University of Houston, where you see really sick patients and care for patients in a quaternary care setting, I think that patients will be approached in that way, but I think we need to get there first 
And then we'll do some pilot studies and look at what the data is. But you know, clearly there's different mechanisms of action here. So in my mind, they should work synergistically and I don't think that they should be um, you know, counteracting each other. So why not? That's very interesting. Now, what about the LBP's first seat of prophylaxis? Haha, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, you guys. We're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. Um, but now I'd like to talk, I'd like to learn a little bit more specifically about the LBPs um, that are coming to market because uh, like you said, none are technically FDA approved yet. So um, Paul, can you tell me what products are currently in the poop line and uh, how are they different from each other? Also, am I allowed to use CETA funds for these products? They are technically used for CETA. You are 100% allowed to use CETA funds. And I love the poop line uh, analogy. And it, that's truly kind of what it is. Um, all of these products are in some way, shape, or form human-derived, okay? Uh, and really what we need to think about is mode of administration and what we call narrow spectrum versus broad spectrum. So a narrow spectrum is, look, we know that there's deficiencies of two main phyla when patients get C. difficile infection. The deficiencies of those two main phyla is that dysbiosis, and those are the bacteroidetes and the firmicutes. So a product might say, well, look, we don't need to give everything back. Let's not throw the kitchen sink at this. Let's just replace the deficiency. And that is a product called SCR109, which is a capsule formulation it's given as four capsules daily for three days following the standard of care antimicrobial. And that just contains the firmicutes spores. That's different than something called RBX 2660. RBX 2660 is a broader consortium. It contains both spore and non-spore forming bacteria. It is administered rectally. So it is administered straight to the site of infection. And it is a one-time administration given after that standard of care antimicrobial. Now there's two other products. The first two that I listed, RBX 2660 and SER 109 have both completed phase three trials and have both presented positive results for their trials. The other two products have finished phase two trials and are now proceeding to phase three or are active in phase three. One is a product called CP 101. This is a capsule formulation. And with this capsule formulation, patients are given 10 capsules on a single day after the standard of care antimicrobial, and they reported positive results in their phase two trial, and they are currently in the middle of a phase three trial. Now, finally, we have something called VE303. VE303 is different in that it's not completely narrow consortium, meaning it doesn't just have a phyla or a spore that it gives, and it's not broad consortium, but it's what we call defined consortium. And a defined consortium are eight microbial species that originally came from a human digestive tract, but then are reproduced in a lab. And they reported their data at a major conference in San Diego, California in May of 2022, and they showed that their high-dose version, which is 15 capsules daily for 14 days following the standard of care antimicrobial, that showed a positive top line result. So we see all four products have exciting data. All four products differ, but all four products have logic to the physiology replacing the deficiencies that we are thinking about and that we contextualized with the pathophysiology back in the original discussion. 
That's so interesting. I was thinking to myself, especially when you were listing the number of capsules for some of these, like, wow, that's a lot of capsules. But then I remember um, Kevin Gary on the last C. diff episode saying, if you've ever had C. diff, you know how not fun it is and how terrible it is. So I'm sure these, this would not be a problem in this patient population, um, just because most of the time, especially if you're somebody who has had at more than one C. diff um, recurrence or episode, I guess, you're probably looking for any solution and you'll be willing to do whatever it takes. Yeah, likewise, when I look at these, I immediately think, oh, I'd much rather, you know, an oral formulation than an enema formulation. But I, I agree, I'm sure as a C. diff patient, you would just be happy for whatever, whatever you can get, whatever works best. Yeah, pa I mean, patients are willing to do fairly heroic things to get rid of this. I mean, you know, classically it was administered via colonoscopy. So now you're taking a bowel purge, you're having anesthesia, you're having a scope inserted, right? There's risks of perforation, there's risks of bleeding, there's risks of transference of infection associated with that. So really, I mean, these formulations are a little bit more straightforward um, and patients are, are accepting of, of the data. They're accepting of what a practitioner will say is, look, this is a tool that we can use to help you. This is how it works. And they're usually fully willing and able to do it. Well, that's great to hear. And thank you guys so much for the rundown on what these products are. Before we kind of transition off of them, I want to know what do you guys, what are you guys most excited about with this new era of therapeutics? Like what excites you about these products? You know, there's a ton of stuff to be excited about here. Really what's exciting is, you know, I used to walk in the room and say, this is what I'm going to do. And the patient will look at me and say, you're going to put what, where, and how, what, what is going on here? This is crazy. In the lay press though, I mean, this is kind of a funny thing. It's disgusting. It's scientific, but we don't need to be rudimentary about it anymore. We can say, look, this is what we used to do. And if you came five years ago, this is what we would have done. But now this is what we have. And we're doing a similar kind of process in a more sophisticated way that's more predictable and more safe. So for me, the excitement comes in is when I'm, wa when I'm walking into the room to see a patient with multiply recurrent C. difficile, and I'm looking at that door handle, and I now have options to present to that patient. I don't have to say, do you have a friend? And some people don't want to talk about this. I mean, imagine, I want you to take a step back and think, well, which one of your friends would you ask to receive their stool from? I mean, some people didn't want to ask their spouses, and I can understand that. So really, this kind of opens the door for opportunity for, for success for patients and, and really also success for science because more patients will have access to these products. Currently, it's really before the pandemic, it was starting to widen because people were becoming more comfortable with the concept. After the pandemic, there was a massive bottleneck and patients were again getting siphoned back to a number of specific centers in the country, but really limited, large underserved communities, never had any access within hundreds of miles. So really this opens the door for access also. So that really excites me. And then I think I have a, maybe a two-part answer. So I think what excites me about LVPs is um, everything that Paul said, it was well, well stated. I think what's also kind of exciting is as we previously discussed, we're really only kind of at the tip of the iceberg with understanding what the, how the microbiome impacts human health in 
in many, you know, many ways that we don't even know yet. And so I'm a little bit excited um, and hesitant <laughs> to see kind of what other impacts these LBPs can have and or, you know, inclusion of different strains, what kind of changes did that bring with it? Um, kind of, kind of um, related, but the other thing I'm excited about, I think is just with this growing appreciation for utilizing the microbiome as a way to optimize outcomes in CDI is, um, this is, these aren't LBPs, but we've also kind of seen different modalities explored. So the antibiotic neutralizing therapies, so like rabaximase or um, DAB132, the kind of, the therapies that are meant to kind of degrade antibiotics before they hit your lower GI tract. And so those are very fascinating to me too, because it's, it's kind of approaching the same issue from a different angle. I'm glad to hear that there's still so much more in the world of C. diff coming, um, but outside of C. diff, and you kind of touched on this earlier, Anne, and then in your answer just now, the microbiome is linked to so many things outside of just C. diff, so many things in normal human functioning in other areas that aren't even necessarily infection related. So um, do these LBPs show improved outcomes in other in any other areas outside of C. diff, or are we really just limited to CDI at this time? So I, I, I'll feel free to chime in afterwards. I know RBX2660 was um, being investigated for some other in indications as well. So I think there was a trial for um, recurrent UTIs and Crohn's disease um, and ulcerative colitis. Um, I think also maybe hepatic encephalopathy. I'm not as, as familiar with kind of what the others may be sure. studied for. With regards to LBPs and other indications, the only big one that, that was assessed was a product from another company uh, from Ceres um, that looked at ulcerative colitis. And unfortunately, it wasn't a successful study. Now, with that being said, we are at the tip, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg. And the tip of the iceberg really shows that fecal microbiota transplantation has signals of efficacy in certain subsets of patients with certain subsets of diseases. So for example, one disease is, um, is irritable bowel syndrome. And we were part of the first prospective randomized control trial that looked at fecal transplant in patients with IBS-D. And what did we find? We actually had a negative study, but we found a signal of efficacy in patients with post-infection IBS-D. So, that's something that's going to get explored further. In the world of ulcerative colitis, there are signals of efficacy in subsets of populations. We're starting to understand the dysbiosis, because remember, in order to understand how you can help, you have to understand what's going wrong in the first place. And that was something that I think in the world of fecal transplant, we largely um, missed the boat on. So it was almost a situation where we said, whoa, this works for C. diff even though the problem was defined, let's look at it in hepatic encephalopathy. Let's look at it in autoimmune hepatitis. Let's look at it in obesity. Let's look at it in rheumatologic disease. But wait a second here. That's not how science works. The way science works is you define the problem and then you define the solution as opposed to putting the cart before the horse. With C. diff, the data were out in 2008. We knew bacteroidetes and formicutes was the problem. So these products were targeted for that deficiency. And I think that's a really important point. But as we look forward, 
there's tons and tons of research happening right now looking at many different indications. Will they all work? Absolutely not. Will some of them work? Probably. Is this going to be the next revolution in science? Well, I think all of us believe it possibly could be. But do I think that this is going to change completely how we do everything? I don't. Um, but I think that it will play a role in certain major diseases. Well, that's exciting. It sounds like, like you guys said, this is the beginning of maybe a new chapter of exciting science and exciting therapeutics. And I'm looking forward to see where it goes. So thank you guys for sharing all of that with us. Now we're going to pivot to our I Feel Nerdy segment, which is one of my favorite segments. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So today for the I Feel Nerdy, since these LVPs, like this area is pretty new, so I feel like there's not necessarily a niche debate that people, that doesn't really matter that people like to bicker over like P.O. Vank versus P.O. Vanko. I want to know what you guys think is the coolest thing about the microbiome that isn't related to C. diff. And this could be anything, anything you guys think is cool. So I'll just um, first begin with, I didn't think there was a debate, um, a trivial debate to be had either. Although I will say I've always pronounced it permacutes and I've heard permacutes as another pronunciation, but Paul has just introduced a third player in the arena and coming from Paul, I'm, it's a strong player. So I will say that might be a debate that needs to be had sometime. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all good. It's, it's like saying y'all versus everybody, right? <laughs> um, no, there's no debate there. About. Y'all is the best one. I don't, I don't. I'm not going to disagree with that, even though I'm from the <laughs> North. You're outnumbered here. Yep. Um, so besides that debate, I think um, to me, the coolest thing, there's a lot of cool things about the microbiome, but I think one area that's particularly fascinating, um, it's, our lab has some ongoing work on it, um, is kind of the potential for the gut microbiome to serve as a reservoir for multi-drug resistance. Um, so the idea being that, you know, once we're colonized with pathogenic bacteria, all of these different bacterial species share the same space in your gut. And then of course, you know, bacteria have the ability to transfer resistance genes to and from each other. And so I think it's pretty fascinating to think that the gut may be this huge reservoir for, you know, all the MDR infections and organisms that we talk about as being completely unrelated to our gut or gut infections. Yeah, I think, I think that's awesome. And, and I mean, there's just so many ways you can go with this. I, I get a weekly email from PubMed of the, of the microbiota publications, and every week it's over 20, and every week there are different topics. I mean, just this week, IBS, autoimmune hepatitis, rheumatoid arthritis, C. difficile, of course, and I can go right down the list, and it's a whole diverse group. To me, the psychiatric elements of this are really fascinating. And, and actually there's fascinating data that's come out relating back to C. difficile, but the psychiatric elements of it. What they did was looking at the phase three trials, they looked at the psychiatric baseline pre-transplant, and then they looked after transplant at the C. diff 32 uh, quality of life score, which is you know, social, physical, overall um, symptomatology. And patients who didn't recur, of course, had higher scores afterwards. But interestingly enough, the patients that received placebo who recurred had a, high, had a lower level, of course, but the patients who received intervention, active drug, actually had higher scores. 
So the question is, their symptomatology returned of the C. difficile, but altering that microbiota did something else, did something to their psyche. So again, you know, we joke about this, but dark chocolate, dark chocolate is known to be something that makes us feel positive, makes us feel good. Some people say it's an aphrodisiac. So maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's not the dark chocolate. Maybe it's what the dark chocolate is doing to our microbiota. And that's what those sorts of things make me think about and excite me about this, which is, as I said earlier, this isn't going to cure everything, but there are certainly going to be things that we learn about, like obesity. There are thoughts that if the donors are thin and you transcribe the microbiota, you might be able to induce weight loss. Results have been very heterogeneous with this. This needs to be studied much more extensively, but metabolically, perhaps there's something there. And maybe if you consistently alter the microbiota of somebody who's obese with somebody who's not microbiota, they might be more efficient. And this gets into some people can eat and eat and eat and stay like this and thin, and other people will eat a small amount and grow wide. So I think that the insights into these things are just so exciting. And there's so much for us to learn. That is so exciting, although I'm already dreading the fad diets that might come about of that. And you'll drop five pounds. No, no, thank you. No, thank you. (laughs) Yes, but those are, thanks for sharing that with me. It's always great to see into the experts' minds what they think is the coolest thing because you guys know it better than anyone. So thanks for sharing that. And also thanks again so much for being with us here today. I know I learned so much today um, and now I'm extra excited for what's coming with these products. And I feel like I have a little bit better knowledge of where I might use them once we have access to them, which will be hopefully relatively soon. But I also want to thank all of you listeners today for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Britt, and our featured speakers have been Ann Gonzalez Luna and Paul Feuerstadt. This episode was sponsored by an unrestricted medical education grant from Faring Pharmaceuticals. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Gesto, Erin McCreary, and Jason Pope. This episode was produced by myself and Julian Hayes. It was edited by Eileen Ahaskali, Kate Desir, and Vivian Tsai. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafonte. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.